We did it in the back parking lot. I had a chef's apron on and a chef hat on. We had barbecue sauce. We barbecued VHS tapes, put them on a hoagie bun with barbecue sauce. I would take a bite out of them and it looked good on camera. (laughs) From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today's guest is Terry Courier, owner of Music Millennium, an independent record store founded in 1969. It might be the oldest continually existing record store in the Pacific Northwest, and it and Terry are Portland icons. I started record retail in 1972 in Portland. Uh, A lot of people think I was the original owner of Music Millennium and created that, but I worked for a small little chain of stores called DJ Sound City from 72 to 84. I was a, a big music junkie. I went to Music Millennium on a regular basis. I used to go there at night because they had all these cool imports and I would go there and read album covers back to back when I'd get off shift at my other job. And, and that job was DJ Sound City and that was in Jansen Beach. Yes. Yeah. And before that, I, I didn't grow up listening to recorded music. I just got into listening to recorded music about three or four months before I got a job in a record store. I can remember getting a car, turning on the radio, hearing Bob Anchetta <laughs> and Gloria Johnson on K-Van Radio in, in Portland. And uh, I just got inspired. A couple months later, I went and saw Leon Russell and the Shelter People at the Memorial Coliseum. And two weeks later, I was applying for a job in a record store. You were hooked. Well, and that I read that the first year that you were employed at a record store, you bought 655 albums. I wanted to know everything that was happening in music, not only currently, but the music from the past. I was a lot to digest, but record stores, the one I worked at, Music Millennium, and even the other record stores in town, like Everybody's Records, Long Hair Music, they were my universities. That's where I learned all my information that that I needed. And I didn't have any peer pressure to listen to any one genre, so I was soaking it all up in, in all genres of music. When you were a kid, you were you played music. You played the clarinet, right? And another, and it was classical. Yeah, I in fourth grade we learned how to play a flutophone, <laughs> which looks like a little mini clarinet. But that summer I took the Suzuki violin method and thought I would take up the violin. But by mid year in the fifth grade, I could tell that a violin wasn't the instrument for me. It was more so the other violin players' sounds when they would make <laughs> wrong notes that would drive me crazy. So I had to take another instrument up, and that ended up being the clarinet. When you were a kid, before you discovered recorded music, I mean, did you picture yourself in a music sort of career, whether it be performing or 
or even teaching? By the time I got into junior high school, it was pretty evident that I was going to go to college and study music. In my mind, I I was in a little small world, and there was really only two directions I could go. I was either going to play in a symphony or I was going to be a music teacher. Mm -hmm. Not once during that time did I think, uh, maybe I could start my own band, maybe I could do this kind of music, because all I did in my youth was practice music, and I did live in this small world, and I didn't know contemporary music, and so it kind of kept me in this area. Had I been exposed to contemporary music much earlier, who knows where I would have went. I might have continued to play music and done something completely different. Was it because of the music that your parents listened to? What did they listen to? Uh, My parents didn't listen to all that much music. I know that when we were in the car, there would be a country radio station Mm -hmm. on. They didn't go to a lot of concerts. I remember them going to a Homer and Jethro concert in like 1965. (laughs) They weren't really into music. But music became such a big part of my life in elementary school. I mean, it was like, wow, this this is great stuff. And somehow it hit me inside, and it, it really forced me to embrace it. In the summertime, I would go to summer music classes in elementary school uh, for three hours a day. And they gave me the opportunity to go to the junior high classes, too, which was another three hours a day. And then I would go home and practice. So You were a junkie. I was putting a lot of hours into music. And so now, I'm curious now, because your parents didn't go to very many concerts. Do you love to go to concerts? Do you like live music as much as you like recorded music? Oh, I very much do. There's usually not a week in the year that I'm not going to a show. And many weeks, I'm going to two or three shows. You know, in 1989, we put a stage in Music Millennium. And uh, it was for our 20th anniversary, and our our goal was to have 20 straight days of live music in the store. It kind of turned into a 40-day stretch. But we put in a permanent sound system, hoping that uh, maybe once in a while, we would be able to get some touring artists to come by the store and play a few songs. Since then, we've done somewhere between four and 5,000 live performances in our store. So besides all the live music I get to see out of the store, there's all that music that I've been able to see within the store. Was that 89, in 1989, because that was in Northwest Portland that you did that, was that at the end of the year or the beginning of the year? Because I came was, here in 89. March 15th, okay, I 1989. That. That's our official birthday is March 15th. The store opened on the Ides of March at 3 o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> on March 15th in 1969. I read it. the timing was picked out in particular because of uh, uh, something in the astrology, right? Yes. Did I there, read that? There, you know, it was a hippie culture. Yeah, you yeah. Know, Don and Lorraine McLeod and Danny and Patty Lissy. Yes, it was Danny Lissy that take the time. Yes. And in the, in that first year and a half that Music Millennium was open, what happened is Don McLeod was working for Tektronics, and they had a special program that if you could come up with a sound business idea, they would let you take money out of your retirement program and invest it in it. You just had to bring it to them. They had to okay it. 
So he took the money out of there to start Music Millennium. <laughs> and for the first year and a half, it was Danny and Patty Lissy, his brother-in-law and his wife, and then his wife, Lorreen McLeod, that were running the store. At that point in time, the store was doing really quite well. It was only in 800 square feet in that building. And on East Burnside. Yeah, on yeah. East Burnside. He decided to leave Tektronics and come over, and they expanded the store. They moved up into the east side of the store, which gave them about 2,500, maybe 2,700 square feet of space. Don was an audiophile kind of guy, and he felt that American uh, vinyl was inferior to the rest of the world. And so he went to Europe and set up distribution agreements with them to get product in from Europe to bring into the store. And then he divided the store. You could walk on one side of the store and there would be a who section. You could go on the other side of the store, there would be a, a import who section. <laughs> he was one of the first people to really bring in a, a heavy amount of imported product into the United States. And while he was over in Europe, he found out there was all this other music too, not just these other pressings of records. There was all these artists over there that weren't getting released in the United States. And he brought a lot of that stuff back into Portland and turned the customers on to that. In fact, he was able to get a show on kink radio on Sunday nights after he did that. And he could play anything he wanted for like an hour, hour and a half. I've heard old tapes of this stuff. And it it was really amazing because it was free form radio in, <laughs> in many respects. I mean, it was a holdover from the beginning of FM radio and the underground radio era of the late 60s. Kink the underground link. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll have to get our hands on that. That would be awesome to play. So you started off at DJ Sound of Music. Uh, the McLeods had Music Millennium that they started in 69. Now, I read that they sold it briefly. The business started not performing well. Don well, came back in. Actually, he sold it in 79 because he 79. wanted to get out of the business. Mm -hmm. uh, the business was getting a little crazy. Yeah, there was a certain amount of sex and drugs and rock and roll. No way. In, <laughs> in that era of the record industry. Color me shocked. <laughs> and it was just getting a little too crazy and out of control <laughs> for him. And he decided to move to Amboy, Washington, where he had 100 acres up there. He built a storybook cottage up there, put on a fish pond, put some chestnut trees in was kind of living off the land. And they sold it to a family in the middle there that had it from 1979 to 1984. Mm -hmm. He financed the deal, so they were making payments to him. And about a few payments before they had him paid off, they said that they were going to file bankruptcy and shut down the company. And this was in 1984. They were on hold with all the suppliers so they weren't getting product in. And uh, Don, who really was living this sheltered life out there and didn't really know what was going on in the records industry at that time, 
was bold enough to assume a half a million dollars in debt. At that point in time, the middle ownership had expanded Music Millennium to four stores. There was one out in Rockwood that did zero business. There was one in Tigard, and then there was the one on Northwest 21st, as Mm -hmm. well as the Burnside store. And I went to work for him at that time uh, when he came back, and we spent the next three years digging it out of debt. He had a good reputation from those first 10 years when he was there, and I had a pretty good reputation in the industry. And between the both of us, we were able to talk credit departments into giving us an opportunity to try to pay off these debts and getting a little more credit. And we were able to do that. And the 80s were great. It was a great opportunity to do that. In today's state of the industry, I don't think we would have been able to do that. Much different times. You're listening to Kink's Portland 50 series. I'll continue our conversation in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Terry Courier from Music Millennium. No, I want to step back for a second because I want you to tell the listeners how you got the job at Music Millennium. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Well, I love this story. This is the true story. <laughs> I called Don McLeod up, set up an interview, went over to Music Millennium. I sat in this office and I filled out an application. I sat there for an hour. And I turn to this woman in the office and I go, is he going to come back and interview me? She goes, I'm not really sure. You might want to go upstairs, look around and see if he's up there and talk to him. So I went upstairs. I said, are you going to interview me? He goes, oh, I already know who I'm going to have to manage the store. If you'd like to leave your application to be a clerk, you can leave it at the front counter. So... I pretty much just left the store and went away. And then two weeks later, I got a call from him again. And he goes, "Uh, you still interested in the job? And I go, yes. He goes, can you meet for dinner at the Key tomorrow night? I go, sure. So I I went and met him. And it it almost turned into trivia night. It was (laughs) like we played 200 questions about music. He goes, who's the Fairport Convention? And I started naming the current members, the previous members, what they did after they left the band, and he kept going. It was actually a great time. It sounds like it. It would have been fun (laughs) to listen to that conversation. (laughs) And the next morning he called, and he goes, you want the job? And I go, yes, when do you want me to start? He goes, can you start today? And I go, well, i got to give these guys some notice here. And for the next couple of weeks, I worked both places. That was probably a crazy but fun time. Yes. So that was in 84. A few years later, you ended up buying the stores from Don. Uh, It was at that point he wanted to retire? After we paid off the debt, he actually, he gave me and the bookkeeper like 5% each of the business for helping to bring it back from the debt. Mm -hmm. And then in 89, I I bought like 25% more of the company. By... Around 1990, he was 
not coming in on a regular basis to the store. He was staying at his farm and taking care of things like that. But in 1996, he was diagnosed with leukemia mm. and he passed away. And at that time, I bought out the estate. Mm-hmm. You know, we we miss him every day. There was there was there was a s- certain flair about Don McLeod that really was an inspiration to the starting of a lot of record stores in town. When Music Millennium started, there was a bunch of customers that were shopping that were inspired to go. I I can do this too. Tom Keenan over it. Everybody's records started that way. Uh, in the 70s, Portland had probably the best record stores in the whole United States. They were very competitive with each other and because Millennium set that standard with all these imports and great promotions going on, the other record stores were always trying to exceed that. So as a uh, music fan out there, even if you had a favorite record store, you were shopping them all because you didn't know what you might find in one of those other stores. Competition breeds excellence. Yes. Another good story, and I remember when this was happening because I was in Portland. Uh, it was 1993. The music industry, they wanted to end the use of sales of used CDs and records. Garth Brooks acted as their spokesperson. And while used CDs and, and albums weren't a big part of your business, you decided to take a stand. Well, in January of that year, four of the major distribution companies out of the big six that were in business at that time made policies that they wouldn't support stores with marketing or advertising money if they sold used CDs. So I typed out a three-page letter sent about 100, 120 copies out to presidents, vice presidents of record labels and distribution companies, as well as the trade publications that were in the industry at that time. And I told them that it was an unfair practice for them to put in effect because this was our business and you're really telling us what to do with our business and you don't have any legs to stand on to do that. We should be able to do whatever we want to do. It became a fight between me and the industry and the trade publications were regularly covering this. But it got to a point where I knew that it really had to get to the public or nothing was going to happen. It was just going to keep going back between us. In the process, a lot of independent retailers were calling and going, oh, we support your stance. If there's anything we can do, please let us know. And then one day in June, uh, one of the guys from one of those trade publications called me up and goes, Garth Brooks just did a press conference and says that he doesn't want his new album sold in stores that sell UCDs. This was just shortly after he had made a statement that he had so much money that his kids, their kids, their grandkids would never be able to spend it. And we pulled all our Garth Brooks product off the shelf at both stores within 10 minutes and wrote it up for returns. And that was on a Wednesday. 
the next day I bought an ad in the weekly paper here. I invited the public to come down to the store to bring their Garth Brooks albums, posters, VHS tapes, whatever it was, and we would barbecue them in the back parking lot (laughs) the next Friday. And I sent out a press release that day, too, to all the media in town. By the time the barbecue happened the following Friday, every media had either called or came to the store to find out about this. We even got customers calling going, is it? Is it going to be bad for the air if you burn <laughs> CDs on the grill? It, it, it was an interesting thing. I but remember that. We did it in the back parking lot. I had a chef's apron on and a chef hat on. Uh, we had barbecue sauce. We barbecued VHS tapes, put them on a hoagie bun <laughs> with barbecue sauce. I would take a bite out of them, <laughs> and it, it looked good on camera. <laughs> and... I ended up taking that on the road and doing a tour from Bellingham down to San Diego at nine different record stores along the way. And we got all those record stores to try to get as much media attention in their area. We also sent out press releases, and this is before the computer. Mm -hmm. So we we hand-mailed probably about 150 press releases to major media across the United States. We did the tour. We were being followed by MTV, CNN, Rolling Stone, People Magazine. And within two weeks of the barbecue ending, all the distribution companies rescinded their policies on UCDs, and it was business as usual. (laughs) Except no more Garth Brooks CDs and any type of music in Music Millennium stores to this day. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to then jump forward uh, probably about a decade to when Napster, well, not quite a decade. This is the late 90s. Napster started Apple iTunes uh, digital music downloads, which, you know, I know in the radio business, we were worried about that competition in the music industry and the record store industry had a huge impact for you. It definitely had a major impact. Leading up to Napster and those couple of years before that, there was a certain amount of the public out there that felt that new CDs were too expensive, including a lot of us record store owners too. But when Napster happened, this whole group that was brewing embraced Napster in a big way and really helped it spread in a big way quick. They felt that not paying for music was the great revolt against the record industry. Mm-hmm. Well, we weren't the ones that were signing the artists. We weren't the ones that were putting the prices on the CD. But we were very much affected by all of this. And what happened at that time is especially the youth marketplace embraced Napster, digital downloading, and it became a growing format of music in the industry. And we weren't getting the ability to get any revenue from that because they weren't coming in our stores at all. So what happened is that over the next seven or eight years especially, we lost all our new customers, the ability to get our new customers because they weren't coming in the store. 
And our older customers were getting older and either dying off or downsizing and not buying as much music. Between the years 2000 and 2007, record stores in America went from 7,500 down to 1,800. Now, in 2007, well, let's go back to the barbecue for a second. <laughs> the barbecue was an inspiration to me because I realized that other independent record stores and other markets had common in- interests and common problems. So in 1995, just a couple years after that, uh, I started this group called the Coalition of Independent Music Stores, which was like a support group for record stores in non-competitive marketplaces to work together, to share ideas, to make each other better stores, and actually work records together. And we were very successful at that. We ended up with a group of almost 73 stores at that time. But we were getting phone calls all the time of every store in the country wanting to join this group. And we had to kind of guide this group, and we could only go up to a certain amount of stores and really make it work. Mm -hmm. So two other coalitions started up after that point. Now back to 2007, the three coalitions got together and formed what is known as Record Store Day. Yes. And what we did is we went to the major distributors and labels and asked them if they would make a compelling product on vinyl, uh, a format that really had been gone for the major record labels since about 1989. They didn't see any reason not to do it for us exclusively because None of their other customers caring about vinyl. And that first record store day, we ended up with 50 exclusive titles that were available on that day, all limited edition pieces. That created that first record store day. Now, when we did the press for this event, because the media had really been painting a picture that record stores were going away, which they were correct, they were going away, but much of the media had been painting the picture that we were going to be obsolete at any time. They already wrote your obituary. So it gave us an opportunity to kind of toot our horn out there that goes, hey, wait wait a minute, everybody. <laughs> There's record stores out there. We're not going away. We're kicking and screaming out here, and we're going to make this work. And by the way, we've got vinyl. <laughs> and it kind of woke up people out there going, there's record stores? They actually make records still? And, and, I, and uh, I can play them? Yes. And, the, and they're not really old stuff, they're new stuff that I can't get anywhere else. And if you look at the graph of business from 2007, when that first record store day happened, to now, you can see this, this inclining arc of the growth of vinyl to where Vinyl right now represents like 13.5% of the physical goods sold in the United States right now. And that's impressive because it was less than single. I mean, it was yes, nothing. There were, it was the nothing. The only people that were making any vinyl at that time 
were small independent labels. Right. And a lot of it were 45s. And they were novelties. Yes. You know, they weren't being played much and they weren't for major consumption. You know, it was just, here's a record. Isn't this neat? You know, the independent record stores today, even though that that figure is 13.5% nationally, the figure of vinyl sold in independent record stores is probably over 60% at this particular time. We're probably half and half at Music Millennium. Thank you for joining me for part one of my conversation with Terry Courier from Music Millennium. I'll have part two next week. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.